Well, if you have uh, your Bible with you, uh, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 12, or if you're using uh, a device, John chapter 12 is where we'll be uh, most of this morning. And uh, again, so glad that you're here. I hope that uh, you'll make plans to participate uh, in all of the things that we're doing uh, across Easter, our Good Friday service on Friday at 7. Uh, at that evening, we'll begin the prayer vigil, which will last until Sunday morning. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Easter Sunday, as we uh, uh, get together to celebrate um, with the history of 2,000 years of history in the church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But today is Palm Sunday. Now, I wonder if uh, you were told that you only had one week to live, what you would do with your one week. Uh, there's an awful lot of talk these days about uh, the idea of having a bucket list, and probably all of us, even if we have a formal one, could immediately start spitting out things we'd like to do that we haven't done to this point. Uh, and I wonder if you knew this was your last week, uh, if you'd go to that list. Um, I rather think that if I knew I only had one week to live, that seeing sights uh, wouldn't be my highest priority. My highest priority would be spending time with those who love me and who I love the most, and that's probably how I would uh, wrap it up. There is a a professor at Oregon State University, an art professor named Julie Green, and in the year 2000, she was living in Oklahoma when she was reading the newspaper and an article on uh, an inmate who had been put to death, had been on death row for about 15 years, and it caught her eye, and she read it. She really didn't have a connection to the idea of of the, the death penalty, but for whatever reason, this one stood out, and as she read about his execution, uh, she got to the bottom of the article, and it said that his last meal was six tacos, six glazed donuts, one cherry Coke. And she was taken by that for some reason. She called the paper and asked why they printed that, and they said uh, the response to her was that people are interested. And it just uh, was not something she could let go of. Here's a person who'd been on death row for 15 years. They knew that their end was coming, and when their end came... The thing they wanted most was six tacos, six glazed donuts, and a cherry Coke. Uh, She went on from that particular article uh, to begin creating what she calls, it's an art exhibit called The Last Supper. And she takes a plate and she studies the last meal of inmates who've been on death row and then executed, and she portrays their final meal uh, on a plate that's painted, and then it's in an art exhibit. And since the year 2000, uh, she has done 600 plates, just capturing what was the last meal of inmates. I'm not sure if that would be my choice, if I knew it was coming. There's a great irony that uh, inmates on death row are probably among the few in society who actually know when their last week comes. Most of us don't know when our end is going to come, which is all the more reason why we should carpe diem, we should seize the moment, we should uh, breathe deep and enjoy the life that God has given us and the loved ones that our life is surrounded by. Jesus knew at the end of this week his life would be concluded. And it's interesting when we contemplate what we might do with our final week in life to understand the significance of what Jesus did. This story of Palm Sunday is very reminiscent of a story that happens prior in John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, when Jesus has just uh, fed the 5,000. This is what verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, 
This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, everyone who was around Jesus sensed that there was something significant about him. And in this particular culture, they had long awaited uh, God's promised Yahshua, Messiah. And they saw in him the right stuff. And yet Jesus refused the recognition and withdrew. So when we get to John chapter 12, when we get to the triumphal entry, it's significant because Jesus is finally going to step into his birthright as the second person of the Trinity, as God's Son sent into the world to reveal uh, God's love to us and his sacrifice for our sin. So we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16, revisit the story of uh, Palm Sunday. It's a simple story, but there's great significance in it. Uh, we're going to look at the reactions uh, within the story, and then I want to uh, end our time by challenging us uh, with three particular thoughts. So John chapter 12, verse 12 through 26. Verse 12 says, The next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that he, they heard that he, had done this, uh, that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went out uh, to, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida at Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father, we thank you for uh, the sending of your Son into the world. We thank you for the miraculous virgin birth, for a lifetime, however brief it was, of teaching truth about your kingdom and about you. But Father, as, as Christ followers today, uh, we remind ourselves of the significance of this day. For had Jesus not gone to Jerusalem, the hope that we most desperately needed would not have come to us. And so as we revisit this visitation to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, I pray that you would speak afresh and anew what it means for us to be your followers, what it means to follow you, and how we ought to best go about reaching those who still stand afar from the cross, who still stand at a distance from Jesus Christ. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
I'm not sure what you would do with your final week, but I, I am certain of this, that if your final week came and you knew that it was coming, uh, you would care very little about what you've done with your hands. You wouldn't worry so much about the mark you spent your career trying to make on the world. Uh, you wouldn't worry about things in your past. You'd be crystal clear on the value of the present moment. And the reason why Palm Sunday is so significant to you and I is because there is none like Jesus in all of the world. History foretold Jesus coming. These moments which we see in this passage were spoken of prior to the time of Christ, prior to his arrival here at this moment. There's no one like Jesus Christ in the history of the world. More than that, Scripture tells us that heaven had been focused on this week. Out of all the weeks in human history, this week is the week that heaven was concerned about. And it is in Jesus coming to Jerusalem that the clock begins to tick and God's plans for our redemption begins to unfold. This week is the pivot point of human history. Regardless of what you feel about it, regardless of how you will live Monday through Saturday this week, this week in the life of Christ is the turning point of human history. Everything turns on this week in the life of Jesus. Additionally, this week represents the hope for your heart. It's the hope of your being restored to a Father who loves you, who created you in His image, and who has good planned for you. It is God's intention that as we revisit this week, this coming to Jerusalem, that we would be reminded that He's not just the hope for the forgiveness of our sins in the past, but He's the hope for how we should live in the present moment. And that is what is interesting about the story because for all of the fanfare, the ticker tape parade, for all the excitement of Jesus, the King, coming to Jerusalem, by week's end, Two crowds walk away. One, well-intentioned. The crowds who wave palm branches and rejoice singing Hosanna are by and large not the same crowd that will cry crucify him at the end of the week. Nevertheless, neither of those crowds understood the significance of Jesus Christ and his coming into the world. So I just want to revisit uh, the story of Palm Sunday. We are tipped off to the significance of this day uh, in the very first verse, verse 12, when it says, The next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. In another passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, long before getting to Jerusalem, Jesus tells the disciples, The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem that the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. He'll be tried. He'll be beaten. He must suffer death and then be raised again. So, like the Old Testament, there have been many prophecies talking about this particular week in Jesus' life in Jerusalem. But it is not until Jesus determines to go to Jerusalem that things begin to change. Because you could be a a wannabe out in the sticks, and as long as Jesus had just worked the perimeter of Jerusalem The religious leaders and the political establishment would probably have been happy to let him do that. There had been many wannabe messiahs. But the moment Jesus, with resolution, determines to go to Jerusalem, things are going to change. And the most significant thing about Palm Sunday is that Jesus knows how this week is going to end. 
He knows who He is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's in this that we discover the humility of Jesus Christ because even though He is King of kings and Lord of lords, He willingly comes to Jerusalem knowing that He's going to suffer and He's going to die for our sins. I hope that the wonder of Jesus Christ escape you this morning. He came knowing that he would pay a price for your sin. But he came with resolution. In fact, he will say later uh, in another portion of Scripture that no man takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly. So there were many who heard that Jesus was coming and they were believing something. The question is, what were they believing? Chapter 12, verse 11, the prior verse says, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The account of him is the account of Lazarus. Uh, The context is chapter 11, verses 38 through 57, when Jesus raises Lazarus back to life, a dear friend of his who's died. And there are mixed reactions uh, in that passage of Scripture to Jesus raising Lazarus. I'm not sure what your reaction would be, but I would be rather taken with Jesus if he just called out the name Lazarus and a dead man walked out of a tomb. And nevertheless, in spite of that, there are mixed reactions. Some believing, some disbelieving. Some running off to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus has done. And it is in that that the chief priest actually issues a prophecy uh, to those who are concerned around him that it's better for one man to die for the people than for Rome to come and take all of us. So even then, the chief priest unknowingly prophesies that Jesus is going to die. Verse 13, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now we discover very quickly that the people wanted a king when they were trying to take Him by force in Romans chapter 6. is because they wanted to restore someone to the throne of David, someone who could throw off Rome. And that's not why Jesus came. And so there's this uh, contrast between what it is we're looking for and who it is that God intends to be for us. Nevertheless, the people cried, Hosanna. And they waved palm branches as Jesus entered the streets. Now, palm branches are significant because they're tied to the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths. In the Old Testament, this was the, the last festival uh, in, the, uh, in the calendar. And what they would do is they would actually leave their homes. They would establish a kind of a makeshift shelter covered with palm branches. And they would celebrate God's goodness to them throughout the course of the year. And then they would also pray for a good rainy season to start a new harvest. And this had been going on ever since God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt. In fact, the, the tabernacles, the, the Feast of Booths, was a reminder to them that when they got into the Promised Land, they shouldn't get so full of themselves. They shouldn't forget that all the things they had acquired, all the blessings, were really from God. And so they would divest themselves of that for a short period of time uh, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so the palm, the waving of the palm, is a reminder of God's goodness to them. Uh, it's tied to Psalm 18, 118, which we'll look at in just a moment. Verse 25 through 26 of Psalm 118, before we get there, says, Save us, O Lord, we pray. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So on the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem, the Israelites hearken back to Psalm 118, which is a psalm that's set right in the middle of the Passover celebration. And they prophesy, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us, Lord. Save us now. 
They were praying for deliverance, but the deliverance they had in mind was a, politi- a geopolitical deliverance. They wanted deliverance from Rome to continue to do uh, everything they had always done, which was be enslaved by the law. But that is not why Jesus came. Chapter 12, verses 17 through 18, shows that there's this uh, short-sighted interest. We, we tend to want the immediate uh, over the most important. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why they went to meet him was that they heard he had done these things. So many people are initially attracted to Jesus because of the signs. When the multitudes, when Jesus stopped multiplying uh, fishes and loaves and feeding the multiplied thousands, when he stopped doing that, the crowds began to leave him. And he asked his disciples, will you leave me too? So many of us are tempted to come to Jesus for what he can do for us and not, not simply because of who he is. But this is the invitation of the gospel to find in Jesus not only a singular, the singular greatest human who's ever walked the earth, but also to find our God who has made a way back for us to him. Verses 14 through 15, Jesus came uh, to redefine what it looked like uh, to be a leader. He says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on him, just as it was written in Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Beginning with uh, presenting uh, him as a king, um, they, they wanted someone to be a king, but Jesus redefines what that looks like. The passage tells us that the disciples were actually confused by it. Because you would expect a king who's going to throw off Rome to be riding a horse. Jesus chose the foal of a colt. It's fulfillment of prophecy, but it's also a statement. Jesus came to bring peace. Well, we Americans embrace the idea of strength, peace through superior firepower. That is not what Jesus brought. Jesus was bringing peace, but he knew full well that it would cost him his life. And so he presents himself not just as a king uh, who brings peace, but he also presents himself as a Messiah who must suffer. And therefore, the disciples couldn't recognize him. It's not the way power works in our world. I don't know about you, but I tire of politics. Just about every time I turn the television on uh, or turn the radio on, I just want to turn it back off. I tire of the game of the political elite who play um, on the people um, in order to garner power and wealth. This is not who our God is. God reveals to us who God is by coming humbly, and by doing the, the only thing that will change our destinies, to give himself. There's a great contrast between the Messiah and someone like Alexander the Great. The most uh, a religious guru or a political leader can hope to accomplish is to line his pockets by influencing people. But when life is over, Our impact ceases. This is not the case with Jesus Christ. He comes to Jerusalem to change things. He comes to Jerusalem to change you, to give you hope. The irony is that every year the Israelites rejoice in Psalm 118, the very thing they fail to recognize. Psalm 118 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. 
I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Every year the Israelites rehearse this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And there we see it. Save us, Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Every year, the Passover meal, they rehearse this psalm. Every year, they had a chance to recognize that God was going to send his son, who is king, but that he would be a king unlike any other. He would be a king who would bring peace. And the peace that our world needs, oh, certainly, we could use a little more peace between each other, but the peace we most desperately need is the peace between ourselves and our God. Because apart from that peace, this life that is but a vapor will be over and we will spend an eternity separated from God who loves us. But Jesus came to open to us the way of salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. My mom, probably the most repeated verse I grew up hearing outside of John 3.16, which is the verse that led me to Christ, was this particular passage. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And her version of it might have been amplified to say, if you don't have something good to say, don't say anything, or keep your mouth shut, or you know, you should have a good attitude. But when the Scriptures say this, this is the day the Lord hath made, certainly it's potentially true of every day because God creates good. But the day that the psalmist is referring to is the day of redemption. It's this week that unfolds that God has made. It's marvelous in our eyes. How could God give Himself for my sin? Marvelous in my eyes. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so though they sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they failed to even recognize the significance of what was happening before them. Even his own disciples, verse 16, says, didn't understand these things until after Jesus was glorified. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had been done to him. The people wanted to confer kingship on Jesus, but it's the confirmation of his kingship does not come until the end of the week when he completes the task that was given to him by the Father. Interesting, the Pharisees in verse 19 said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. It's a prophecy that's immediately fulfilled. Immediately, the Greeks who happened to be there asked the question, we would see Jesus. So almost immediately before this week even unfolds, the glory of the gospel begins to take hold. And God's not only going to redeem uh, lost sons and daughters in Israel, but lost sons and daughters around the world. In Matthew's, uh, or Luke's rather, recounting of this gospel, the, the Pharisees tell Jesus when they hear the people singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, they tell him uh, that he should tell them to be quiet. Because they know full well what Psalm 118 means. That Jesus should tell them to stop singing that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus' response, if they do not, then the very rocks will cry out. All of creation is focused on this week. And whether you live with the significance of that or not, you should know that one day 
it will matter to you. Within the passage, we see the response required and reactions received. The, the reason why people were interested in Jesus is because of what Jesus had told um, Mary and Martha at the raising of Lazarus, chapter 11, verse 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you, verse 40, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. The residents of Jerusalem all witnessed pretty much the same thing on this day. There was a buzz about the city. There was a lot of talk about this Jesus. A lot of expectation and hope. And yet, there were different reactions to who Jesus is and to what he had done. Many had fleeting praise for Jesus. They waved palm branches, sang Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as soon as Jesus disappointed, he wasn't on a horse. He didn't have a sword. He didn't come to conquer or throw off Rome and they were disappointed and they walked away. A few, few genuinely believed. They were faith-filled in their response and it, it doesn't mean that they weren't feeble at times. We're going to discover that his closest followers are going to fall away before the end of the week. But it's what happens after that proves their mettle. And some... Some saw Jesus with failed dejection, and their resolve was hardened to undermine him. These same responses that we see on Palm Sunday are the same sort of responses that you and I might have in our day. Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We think of the idea of glorification as as something other than what's going to transpire in his life in the course of this week. We would expect it to say that, that Jesus was going to be crucified, the Son of Man was going to be crucified, but that's not what the verse says. The verse says Jesus is going to be glorified. And the good news for you and I today is that Jesus' glorification encompasses death. Uh, it, it includes the resurrection, and ultimately it leads to his exaltation. You see, the reason why... Palm Sunday should be significant to you and that you need to examine your own response to this story is because Philippians chapter 2 tells us that there's coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, the, is God to the glory of His Father. One day, every one of us will give a response to that question, who do you say that I am? Some lose interest. Some get disappointed. Some genuinely believe, and it transforms not only their life, but how they live. And then others are so dead set against the idea that there's a God to whom they will be held account. They spend their lives just trying to undermine Him, just trying to stick a fork in His eye. Jesus says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Verse 25 illustrates that parable. Whoever loves his life and loses it, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So how ought you and I respond to the story of Palm Sunday? I want to give you three thoughts. Number one, 
the story helps us to recognize that there will always be a tension between you, that is your preferences and your plans, and Jesus' passion. There will always be a tension between what it is that you're after and what it is that Jesus is about. The people waved palms that day uh, because they very much hoped that Jesus would be their fulfillment of what it was they most wanted. A Republican in the White House, a Democrat in the White House, somebody to enact our policies, somebody to look out for the little guy. In this case, it was somebody to throw off Rome. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus is about his kingdom. And there was this tension then between who they were as a people and what they expected and what Jesus had come to do. There are others who wave branches. I'm sure the disciples participated in that. And they saw in Jesus something that they desperately needed, something on a soul level that would change who they were, would give them hope first before ever thinking about hope for the world. And it impacted them. And then the religious establishment, afraid of losing their positions, were just out to get Jesus. They wanted him dead. So we are, as Christ followers, a a perpetual palm-carrying people. When we talk about the palm on Sunday, we say God has opened to us the way of salvation. Jesus The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is marvelous in our eyes. And we know the significance of these events in this week. It opens to us the idea of being loved back into a relationship with our Father because of what Jesus will do for us. We have to be a perpetual palm-waving people. Hosanna. Save us, God. Save us now. Some of us, we like the idea of Jesus whatever it was that drew us to him, it worked for a while, then we lose interest. Work. I am so busy at work. Like, I don't even really have time to come to church today. I've got too much to do. Kids, we've got so many things that the kids are involved in. And before you know it, we put our palm down. And we just drifted away. And we're not unlike the people who on Palm Sunday We're singing about something they didn't even understand. Is that where you're at today? There is a tension between who you are and what you want to be and do and why Jesus came. Jesus came to save you from your sin, to become your best friend, and to walk with you daily through the course of every day, regardless of what you're doing, to bring purpose and redemptive meaning to it. But some of us, distance. You know the reason why there are people who come to church only at Christmas, uh, Christmas and Easter who profess to have a relationship with God, but only come twice a year? You know why? Because they value the idea of Jesus, but they're not really ready to give their life over to it. Then there are others who in this world are just dead set against the idea that I will have to answer to this God. And they... It's not enough for them to say, I deny him. They're not happy that you think you have to answer to him. And so they're just out to destroy the very idea. Make no mistake, there is no religious leader who's ever walked this earth, who ever promised anything other than self-help and good works as a path to get to God, but not Jesus. Jesus said, if you would come to God, 
You must deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so there are some who witness Palm Sunday, and they get its meaning. Paul. Paul gets it. He's a perpetual, palm-waving follower of Jesus Christ. Every day. It's the same thing. I get up every day and I say to myself, this is marvelous in my eyes. The stone which the builders rejected, the authorities, has become the chief cornerstone. This is marvelous in my eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because God has opened to us the way of salvation. Not because His Son became a conquering king, but because He was a suffering servant and He gave His life for me. So every day, we're just carrying around our palm. Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us, God. Save us now. You know, it's not just about church camp. It works there too. First time you hear that you're a sinner in need of God's saving grace, you become a palm waver. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But it's about tomorrow. And it's about Tuesday. And it's about Wednesday. You see, the point of of understanding the significance of Psalm 118 and what Jesus did on this day is, is we recognize that it's the hope of a failing marriage. It's the wisdom that I need to steward my children in such a way that they'll follow Him, that they'll come to know Him. It's how I can practice good ethics in my business because I'm perpetually carrying a palm saying salvation has come. It's, it's marvelous in my eyes. He's dramatically impacted everything about me. My marriage, my children, this idea of, of being a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor a apart from the hope that is mine in Christ. We ought not be the kind of Christ followers who tuck the palm away until next year. We've missed the point. We are to be a perpetual palm-waving people. And we just have to come to terms with this idea that there will always be a tension. You'll feel the tension tomorrow morning when you get up and Jesus says, come to me. All you who are labor and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. Walk with me. This is the invitation Christ offers us. The second idea, I'll give you these next two and then I'll wrap up. Remember that Jesus loves you enough to expose your shallow, self-centered pursuits to bring you to his created purpose. Would you feel a sense of peace in your heart amidst the chaos of this world? with all that's going on around us, would you feel like there's a sense of harmony? Then align yourselves with with what is eternally true, the reality of all things. The reality is Philippians chapter 2. There's coming a point when every person, regardless of how they lived in this life, regardless of their response to Jesus coming, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you would feel harmony in this life, if you would feel peace, if things would make sense for you, then don't live Monday through Saturday like he's not the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Don't pursue life like he's not who he says he is. That doesn't make you his follower. That just makes you a fan. But if we would be his followers, then we must align our lives with that which is eternally true. And we have to know that he is going to use life to expose our need for Him. He wants to uncover your sin. He wants to surface your self-centeredness, 
your shallowness. Why? So that he can draw us more deeply, not only into his love and to his redemption, but into the making of the person we were intended to be. Third, resign yourself to pursue those things that stir your affections for Jesus that will keep you from being passive about his passion. Verse 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Stir those things, or or commit yourself to those things that stir your affections for Jesus Christ. And in so doing, if you learn to follow Jesus, not just on the big days like Christmas and Easter, but Palm Sunday and every other Sunday, then you will find that you will not grow cold about his passion. It's said in ministry that if you want people to, new believers to reach other people who don't know Christ, you need to catch them in the first two years. You know why that is? Because we become passive about his passion. This week is significant in the life of Jesus because uh, it is everything that eternity has been about. Since before the foundation of the world, Scripture says Jesus with the Father and the Spirit enacted a plan whereby humanity might be redeemed, creation might be restored back to him. And as Jesus fixes his focus on Jerusalem and arrives with all of the fanfare, even though it's fleeting praise, he arrives to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. So the question this morning is, Will we surrender, have we surrendered our lives to this Jesus? What, what is our response? Is it, is it just a response of fleeting praise? Like we're big fans of Jesus. I really like him. You know, there's a shirt out there, Jesus is my homeboy. I hope he's more than your homeboy. Because the truth is, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And while he did not come riding on a horse to conquer, he came riding on the foal of a donkey to bring peace through his own sacrifice and suffering. Scriptures tell us that he returns again, and the next time he comes, he is riding a horse, and he is carrying a sword. So let us then be a people perpetually waving the palm branch. This is marvelous in our eyes. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God has opened to us the way of salvation. It's a choice between loneliness or fruitfulness. A choice between losing your life or keeping your life, having life. Between serving yourself or serving Christ. Pleasing yourself temporarily or receiving God's honor eternally. The palm is significant, not just for Israelites. It's significant because it's tied to Psalm 118 and numerous prophecies about what Jesus will do in the course of this week. I hope that its significance is not lost on you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, the sending of your Son. And as we revisit the story of Palm Sunday, it is my prayer that eyes can see and ears can hear that in 
the responses, the varied responses to you on that day are not dissimilar from the responses that fill this room. May we not be a people of fleeting praise. And I'm not just talking about coming to church week after week. I'm talking about how we live day in and day out. That we would be a people who grasp the significance, the singular greatness of Jesus Christ coming into the world, of presenting himself uh, as a king, but a king who brings peace through his own suffering. And perhaps we're like the disciples on that day, confused. We don't completely grasp it all, which is why the psalmist says it is marvelous in our eyes. I pray, Father, that you would help us to truthfully examine our own response to you. That for the person who likes the idea of Jesus, but soon discovers that you disappoint and they walk away, I pray that you would open their eyes to see their desperate need for you, that they would be saved. For the majority of us who profess a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that we would recognize uh, that there is a commitment to follow you that corresponds to our saying we know you. And I pray that we would find ourselves increasingly pursuing those things that stir our heart's affection for you and that we would not grow cold or passive about the high price that heaven paid this week in the life of Jesus. Father, may we be not fleeting in our praise, but may we be devoted fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ to know you and to make you known. In Christ's name we pray, amen.